You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the newsroom to you live. Good morning and welcome to the Washington Post. I'm Francis Steed-Sellers, a senior writer here at the Washington Post. I'm joined today by another Francis Sellers, Dr. Francis Sellers Collins, the former NIH director. Very warm welcome to the Washington Post, Dr. Collins. Oh, thank you so much. <laughs> Wonderful to be here with you, Francis. The Francis Francis Show. Um, <laughs> I wanted to ask you straight away about news that came out last week that Twitter was relaxing its uh, limitations on COVID misinformation. What are the dangers of that move? Well, I think at this point, they're pretty obvious. Um, just looking at what's happened over the course of now almost three years of dealing with the COVID crisis, there is an unprecedented tragedy that has unfolded here where misinformation has not just been a blow uh, to the ability of people to discern the truth, but it has been a fatal blow. Uh, estimates are that more than 300,000 people are currently in graveyards because they chose not to take advantage of a free, safe, and effective vaccine because misinformation convinced them that this was not for them. This is Kaiser Family Foundation estimate. So this is a cultural battle that has consequences that I don't think have been this severe uh, in many of the instances in the past where we've had these conversations about what is true and what is not true. But here, our culture war is killing people. And misinformation, much of it spread on social media, is responsible for a lot of it. Not all of it, but a lot of it. So if you were sitting here with Elon Musk instead of me, how would you address that? <laughs> I'm trying to imagine that conversation right now. Where would you begin talking to Elon Musk about the need for truth? It is interesting, because here's a guy who's made his fortune on engineering. I mean, uh, you could not have a Tesla vehicle if it wasn't based on absolutely rigorous science, developed, engineered, implemented by people who know uh, Maxwell's equations for how <laughs> electromagnetism works uh, as well as any. And we all trust that. It's interesting. Uh, nobody seems to be concerned that somehow the science behind a Tesla car might be somehow fundamentally flawed. So Elon, if you've built your whole career on science, why aren't you worried about a circumstance where there is unbridled release of demonstrably false information that is dangerous uh, to people's health. But help me a little bit with that because science has become so difficult for people to understand. Mm. I mean, I often think back to, you know, years ago people used a typewriter and you typed the wrong key and you could see what happened and it was all, you know, fairly straightforward and visible. We're so, so far beyond that. There is a leap of faith in believing science, whether it's Elon Musk or the science coming out of the NIH for a person even like me as a trained science journalist, right? No, you're right. And I think that calls upon all of us who are trying to communicate science, whether that's someone like me with a role as leading a scientific enterprise or someone like you writing about it, to try to put this into context that a non-scientist can see mm -hmm. what is the actual truth right. here. And that may mean, and this is hard sometimes for scientists, not just to quote statistics and talk about the latest scientific experiment using a lot of jargon, but actually tell a story. Well, tell that's what people respond to. Right. And, and oftentimes, I'm afraid scientists feel like, well, that's not real data, that's an anecdote. Right. And I get that, but I think there is an incredibly important role for an anecdote that actually well describes the data, 
What you don't want to do is pick an anecdote that's a total outlier of the topic that you're discussing, because then that's misleading. Mm -hmm. But a well-chosen anecdote will resonate with people who are not scientists in ways that, you know, quoting the abstract in the New England Journal article just won't get them. Mm -hmm. Take that a little step further. You are a man of faith, uh, an evangelical Christian. You use your platform at the NIH in order to try to reach the people who, who may have vaccine hesitancy or hesitancy about science. Tell them what kind of anecdote works. For... Hmm. I would tell them about Josh Tidmore, a 36-year-old resident of Alabama, um, who, uh, with his wife, members of an evangelical church, heard about the vaccine, heard about concerns about it, um, saw stuff on social media that made them wonder about whether this was for them and who decided therefore to pass it up. And this was in August of uh, uh, 2021. Josh and his wife both got sick. She got better pretty quickly. He progressively went downhill in the ICU and ultimately lost his life four days before his birthday as a 37-year-old with two little kids. No prior existing uh, predisposing conditions. Uh, And he's one of tens of thousands of younger people who lost their lives unnecessarily because of this misinformation about vaccines. And yet his wife goes back to the church and argues, come on, people, you all see what happened here. You have to take this science seriously. Get yourself vaccinated and gets told, no, you've been taken in. There is no such thing as COVID. He had something else and was pretty much ostracized by her own church. That breaks the heart of anybody who hears that story. I did have the chance, uh, and I'll do it again if given the chance, uh, to try to go on podcasts with people who have the ear of evangelical Christians, people like Rick Warren, people like Franklin Graham, uh, people like uh, Tim Keller, um, and try in that circumstance uh, to sort of point out Christians of all people are supposed to be people of truth. The truth will set you free, the words of Jesus. John chapter eight. So how could it be that when you look at the circumstances right now, the group that is most likely to be suspicious and resistant to vaccines are white evangelical Christians. It's so upside down. And this for me is a source of great distress and something that I had planned to write a book about this year, except I ended up in the White House instead. (laughs) Some people have good choices. I want to read a, a, a quote to you from an interview you gave last year. You said, there's another epidemic that's not going to go away, even if we triumph over COVID-19. And you were talking about the epidemic of misinformation. You, choo- you chose the language of epidemiology, science, uh, contagion. Um, mm. Do you still feel that way? Absolutely. Um, and the next speaker, who's a real epidemiologist, uh, who I was speaking to before we came on, I think would also use that language. It does seem to be contagious, especially in our current situation where people have assembled themselves into tribal uh, gatherings uh, and where the views of your particular tribe have a big influence uh, on your own perspective. I've learned a lot about the ways in which we discern truth. I had, I think, fallen into the trap (laughs) of being a bit of a Cartesian who thought, You know, you put evidence in front of people and they make a rational decision. We're all rational actors, right? Well, no. Uh, uh, My friend David Brooks said, if there was a Super Bowl for philosophers and you had 
uh, Descartes uh, lined up against David Hume. <laughs> David Hume would win every time. <laughs> and of course, what he said is, reason is a slave to the passions. And we all have passions. And if you think you're uh, uh, exempt from that, think again. I might have thought I was until <laughs> sort of more self-reflection here. Yeah, we all come to every uh, opportunity to look at evidence with a certain framework, um, a, a web of beliefs, as another philosopher, uh, Quine, has called it. And if something comes at you that doesn't fit your web very well, you're going to find a reason to be skeptical or even just to disregard it. And something that comes at you that might be absolutely falsifiable, but it kind of fits in your framework, you're like, okay, I'll just send that to the next 10 people on my Facebook feed. And pretty soon, there you go. And we have certainly learned uh, that lies spread so much faster than truth in social media because they're designed to inflame people, to get fear and anger going. And we seem very responsive, uh, thanks to our amygdala, uh, to fear and anger. And we come forward uh, with bringing that into our own web of beliefs a lot more quickly than something that is generous and is all about love and truth and beauty and kindness and those other things, which I wish we had more of right now. So we have an epistemic crisis, uh, to put it into academic terms, of what is knowledge, what is truth, is there such a thing as truth? Yes, there is. I'm a scientist. There is such a thing as truth. The earth is round, not flat. It goes around the sun, not the other way around. And that's true no matter how I feel about it. So I want to give you the benefit of hindsight. We've spoken before, and, and you and other public health people I've spoken to have said I never would have believed the amount of disbelief that's gone on. But take yourself back to the beginning of this pandemic. If you had known what was going to happen, how would you have approached the pandemic differently? Yeah. What could we have done if we had anticipated? Yeah, there's this? a lot. <clears throat> I, and I didn't anticipate this. You know, let's be clear. The scientific response to COVID uh, was absolutely historic. What was possible to do in a breathtakingly short period of time to develop vaccines using this new strategy of mRNA and to get them shown safe and effective in 11 months, five times faster than has ever happened before, will be seen in history, I think, as one of the most significant achievements of science ever. And you, I, being in the middle of that, you thought, well, if we can just get that done, then everybody will believe it and it'll be fine. So we were not prepared uh, for a lot of what happened next. Had we been so, I think we would have had much better attention to how we did our communication in a way that really explained the process of science. I don't think in those early pronouncements from people like me where we were trying to say, here's what we know about SARS-CoV-2 and here's the thing that you should now do. I don't think we said enough times, but this is evolving. But we still don't really understand this virus very well. What we said today is the best we could do today, but it might change next week. And when it did change next week and people weren't prepared for that, they began to be suspicious that they were being jerked around. We didn't take advantage as much as we should have of explaining the scientific method, which is that you're constantly evolving your understanding. I wish we'd done that. If we'd had a better sense of how social media could so completely confuse all of this, we'd have done better at surveying that, sort of seeing when misinformation was coming up in a particular way and not being caught back on our heels. We might have even had an opportunity to do what you call pre-bunking, 
uh, where you identify the most predictable malicious lies and you get people ready for them so that when you see somebody says there's a chip in the syringe that Bill Gates put there, even before that's gotten to be there, think about what that's about. Um, we could have done that. People who are experts in this, I talk a lot to Kathleen Hall Jameson at Pennsylvania about science communication. She would say every single one of the most significant disinformation campaigns about COVID were predictable and could have therefore been pre-bunked if we'd had a plan to do that. But the other thing I would say is we should have had a better plan for a communication network across many different areas of society, not just uh, academics or government scientists who were quickly sort of named as elitists by people who didn't want to hear the message. We should have had more communication at the local level. We should have empowered lots of people to be scientific, evidence-based communicators. I even dream of this, maybe as something we could learn from this. Uh, we should have a science communication core. We should enlist every high school science teacher, every uh, college student who's majoring in science, every graduate student, every member of a scientific society to be part of our science communication core. We should have a way of providing them with accessible, accurate information that they can then be the distributors of to people they know in their own community and get away from this elitist sense that a lot of people had about where communication was coming from. Right. So I'd like to ask you now about, you've talked about vaccine hesitancy. Obviously, it goes, I think, a fifth of the American public are not vaccinated, have not had one vaccine at the moment. Um, how do you see the fallout with other vaccines, routine vaccines, polio, measles? Are we worse off now with those vaccinations than we were before the pandemic? It's spilled over, for sure. There's data to show that. And the dangers there are, are truly, truly troubling. We already have had in the United States occasional outbreaks of measles, an entirely preventable disease and a potentially fatal disease that, you know, kills thousands of kids in Africa every year. And here we have, in that case, a vaccine which is incredibly effective and lasts decades, maybe lifelong. And yet this same hesitance, which was already there in, in a community of vaccine-resistant individuals and very vocally put forward, uh, unfortunately so, uh, by a number of individuals, uh, just like Robert F. Kennedy Jr., in a, in a way that has been wholly destructive and is based upon data which has been proven actually to have been falsified, uh, the famous Andrew Wakefield claim about measles, mumps, and rubella being connected somehow. Uh, to autism. That's all been shown false. And yet there was this uh, cadre of resistant individuals, and I don't mean to demonize them because I know they think they are doing the right thing. That's the important part of this. Let's not have us fall into our own tribal alliances of saying people who have a different approach to this are, are not just misguided, but somehow they're evil. They're not evil. They are misguided. But it spills over. And because vaccine hesitancy has become such a thing uh, with COVID, those 50 million people who even today have not had the first jab are going to be very susceptible to whether they can just skip the immunizations their kids normally would have and may even start lobbying to have those no longer required uh, to go to school. And we will slip backwards uh, from decades of amazing medical advances that have saved amazing lives and resulted in our childhood death rate uh, going very, very far down. Do we want to go back there? 
No, but there's a real issue there. Again, it's, it's the problem of this cognitive bias slipping into everything. I want to ask you a little bit about the Biden administration's approach. When the administration came in, they put such an emphasis on saying they would be about science in responding to the pandemic. Mm. And I heard from some specialists in public health who said, you know, maybe they're doing, going too far on that message because, in fact, public health is about more than science, right? You have to, it's policy. You have to make judgments, decisions. You have to mm. figure out. Mm. Where do you lie on that? Do you think we sort of overdid the it's all about science message when, in fact, public health is about more than science? I guess in my mind, those are not separable with a clean line between them. Mm -hmm. There's a science of public health, <laughs> which is basically mm -hmm. to try to take the information, understand the science of communication, which is also a science, right. and then blend them together and figure out how best to make recommendations that are going to save lives and which people will see as uh, acceptable. And it has been challenging. I will say it's been an honor for me this year uh, to serve as president's science advisor and now as a special projects advisor and to be in a White House where science really is considered to be uh, important at the table in every conversation. Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at the real science and try to make those decisions. So I will defend the administration's approach there. But obviously, we've all seen instances where maybe the message was a little more muddled than it should have been, or maybe we're hearing slightly different message from one voice uh, versus another. And um, doing an audit of that would not be a bad thing to see what we could learn uh, for the next time, although I think a lot of those messages maybe um, are already pretty clear. One of the things we clearly do need to, as far as future messages, is to take a better use of social media for the right answers. <laughs> Uh, maybe we need fewer talking heads on CNN and Fox and more TikTok uh, to basically send out there accessible uh, messages that will reach audiences that otherwise are not really hearing the news. So how do you advise the average person about where to get the right information? <laughs> well, it would help if you tried to say, OK, what are indications of credibility? Right. Uh, probably not the latest Facebook post from somebody you don't know. Uh, let's start there. So yes, is this a, a source uh, that appears to have expertise? And, and expertise ought to still matter. I worry a bit that maybe. It matters less now than it has in the past. Mm. Just read a book by uh, Bonnie Christian, uh, which is called Untrustworthy. And she has a whole chapter about the decline of American belief in expertise across all kinds of areas, which is actually quite troubling. And a, and a decline in trust in institutions where the expertise often resides. So certainly, though, if you want to you know, have information about your car, you would probably want to go to somebody who knew something about cars. So likewise, something about science, probably somebody who has some training and maybe is connected to an institution that has some reliability, uh, isn't some made up name. Uh, are the claims plausible? Um, it, does it seem outlandish? Well, then be very careful. Um, is this uh, something that's connected with some kind of scientific society? Has it been published would be a good thing. This has been an interesting one because, of course, during COVID, a lot of the data got put out first as preprints. And that was great because right. we all knew information a lot sooner. But not all the preprint information turned out to be right. So you had to be a little skeptical. But at least it ought to be in some kind of scientific format, a preprint, better yet, published. 
most of the stuff that caused most of the trouble in social media would not have lived up to those standards, and yet it spread like wild. I want to follow up on that comment about preprints because, of course, we began to see um, you know, peer reviewing on Twitter. We saw a whole sort of greater agility in the, science, in the process of producing science for the mm -hmm. public, right? But, and we've talked about this before, there's a huge issue out there now, which is long COVID, and NIH was given $1.15 billion. And there's an awful, I know from recent stories I've done, a huge amount of frustration from people who say, it's not moving. Where is that $1.15 billion going? Hmm. Science is not moving quickly enough to get results. We're not moving quickly enough into clinical trials. Help me. I what totally understand the frustration. I get emails regularly from people who are suffering mightily uh, from long COVID, who after months uh, since the original infection are still unable to kind of get through the day with brain fog, uh, with palpitations, with fatigue that's just grinding. And we don't have answers yet. And the challenge, of course, is that this is a really hard, complicated problem. It is maybe not even just one disease. We don't understand the mechanism behind it. Clinical trials are now getting started. Yeah, I wish they'd gotten started sooner as well. But and the this first is... clinical trial on Paxlovid, right? The results are not expected until 2024, is that right? So... That's what I have seen as the plan. Now, there'll be smaller studies that will come before that. This is the challenge, though, because... Yeah. Look at what we did when COVID first came out. There was a whole bunch of clinical trials put forward in a big hurry to try to see what would treat people who were sick. Most of them were on hydroxychloroquine. That didn't turn out very well. Most of them were small, underpowered, and you would not really have been able to get much of a conclusion. I think what we learned from that is do it right. And likewise with long COVID, you don't want to do a quick and dirty trial with something that maybe gives a hint of a result, but then it turns out to be wrong. Is there a new kind of right we should be looking at that uses more of social media, that picks up on patient experience, that, that is a more agile approach? Yes. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And, and I think, in fact, we've done that now with some of the more recent COVID therapeutic trials is to do these in a fashion where the participants never actually are in the same room uh, with the researcher. It's all done uh, by internet and then send the either the pills or the placebo through the mail and the patient reports their symptoms. Those kinds of trials, uh, real world pragmatic trials are increasingly attractive. You can do them quickly, mm -hmm. they're not very expensive. There are limitations. You don't get to do a lot of the measurements that you otherwise would if you had the patient actually in the clinic. But for certain applications, yeah, we should do more of that, I would say. So coming towards the end, but I want to ask you about what's happening in China where we've had a lockdown and obviously there are protests can you get out of a lockdown unless you have a, an exit strategy? And what should the exit strategy be? They are unfortunately in a really difficult spot here uh, with the leadership having put forward this zero COVID strategy in a way that they now are having trouble backing away from. Um, and they unfortunately were saddled by a circumstance where the vaccines uh, that they had available were probably not as effective as the mRNA vaccines, and yet it's awkward for them uh, to say that. And they didn't do nearly as good a job as I would have thought they would with vaccinating elderly people, where the greatest risk, of course, is. Now, you may notice they're starting to talk more about maybe another wave of vaccines, especially for older people. I think that might be setting the stage uh, for being able to ultimately relax the zero COVID strategy without appearing uh, to have had it wrong to begin with. But they've kind of painted themselves into a difficult corner here. The only country really that kind of took that approach and then stuck to it as an autocratic government can do, but not 
without consequences, as we've seen uh, with the protests that have erupted in a country that doesn't really tolerate protests very well. You can tell how upset the citizens are. I'm going to ask, steal one very quick last question. Um, huge disasters, as we know from the Second World War, lead to great innovation. The Afghanistan war led to improved treatment of TBI. Hmm. I'm not going to let you answer with mRNA vaccines because that's the easy answer. <laughs> but what's the great innovation that's going, that's going to, you're going to look back on and say, we wouldn't have had it without this pandemic? <laughs> not... Okay, you won't let me say mRNA vaccines no. for cancer, but I would have if you hadn't prohibited that. But I, I might still say that could okay. be a great one mRNA because... That's a good mRNA for cancer. You'll, you'll take it. Okay. okay, because cancer vaccines have had a lot of promise, but they have been really not quite taking hold because the cycle time was just too long from deciding this patient might respond to this vaccine, let's make the vaccine. Now with mRNAs, you can do that so much more quickly. So watch this space, maybe not just for treatment, but even for prevention. Uh, when ARPA-H, uh, the new component of biomedical research, gets fully st stood up, and that's coming very soon, this might be an area that they will decide to invest in. Dr. Francis Collins. Dr. Francis Sellers Collins. Thank you so much <laughs> for joining me today. Thank you. We'll be back in a minute with our next guest. Thank you. All right. Thank you. Hi, and welcome back. My name is Akila Johnson. I'm a national health reporter here at the Washington Post. And my guest today is Dr. Katrine Wallace, an epidemiologist at the University of Illinois Chicago School of Public Health, who is here to talk with us today about her work in countering misinformation through social media. Dr. Wallace, or Dr. Kat, as she has become known, welcome to the Washington Post. Thank you so much. It's so nice to be here. And that montage was amazing. <laughs> That's all you. <laughs> Which is what we're here to talk about today, right? So one of the things that I'm really wanting us to kind of just start out with is you're an epidemiologist, you're a professor. Um, what swayed you to take all of that expertise to social media? So I never was meaning to make social media videos like this. I've always just been a professor communicating science in a classroom. And I was on social media at the beginning of the pandemic for the same reason everybody else was. Just I was bored during the stay at home order and I'm scrolling. And I was seeing a lot of dog videos and people's food and dancing on TikTok. And unfortunately, also a lot of COVID-19 misinformation. And at that point in time, it was when you know they were saying COVID wasn't even real and that it was made up to throw the election. And as an epidemiologist and a scientist, it was just astounding to me that these kind of things were going on. So I started to make my own videos, and at first just for my own friends and family because I had, didn't have a big following at that time. But then my information started to get shared, and then you know, here we are two and a half years later and I'm still doing it. <laughs> so who is your audience? Like who, who are the yeah. most of the people that you are sharing this information and are kind of consuming what you are putting out? Yeah, that's a good question. And it's something I think about a lot because obviously with the nature of social media algorithms, a lot of times I'll, I'll be speaking to it an echo chamber. And I understand that that's kind of how these things work. So a lot of the people that follow me are, people that are interested in science, people that are vaccinated, people that are um, you know, interested in public health and community-minded people. Um, but I feel like it's still very worthwhile because all of those people have people in their networks that 
if I arm them with really good information, then what I'm doing has ripple effects at their work or at their Thanksgiving dinner table with their conspiracy uncle. And, you know, it can kind of go outward. So I like to think of myself as arming these people who are already agreeing with me with good information to then disseminate. So do you crawl under the bridge and ever interact with the trolls? Do you get trolls? Who <laughs> oh, I get trolls. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do, I will interact with, it depends. If somebody is ab abusive, I would not interact with that. I, I've learned a lot over the past few years about when to, when it's worth interacting and when it's not, when somebody's asking genuine questions versus just asking questions. Um, so there, you can tell what what's going on. But you know, a lot of times I'll interact with, I'll do a lot of like pre-bunking before I get trolls. Like for example, if something, some new conspiracy comes out, I will start to make videos about it, and that will bring them to my page. So I feel like I don't need to respond to those because I've already put that information, what I think is already out there, right? Right. Because I guess I'm wondering, you, you, right? When you're when you're on social media, I think a lot of people kind of have this cost-benefit of analysis where you kind of want to react and want to have the hot take. But is it worth yeah. it, right? Right. Well, I did a lot more hot takes before. Um, I, I just, you get to a point where, and it might just be PTSD by this point, but I just don't, it doesn't bother me as mm. much as it used to. The, when I first started, it was surprising to me how many people wanted to, you know, give ad hominem attacks or just try to, you know, um, discredit me based on like looks or my voice or just really strange and to, in my entire life had never been treated that way right but it's also the anonymity of being behind a phone screen um, so I used to do a lot more like rebuttals to those or reply videos to those and now I just it doesn't get under my skin the way it did before so I think I've learned somewhat over the <laughs> Somewhat over the it. past two yeah. and a half years. You know, Dr. Fauci recently said that he thinks the most effective way to combat misinformation is to flood the system with accurate information. I agree. Like flood the zone. Yeah. Why is that? Why do you agree with that? I agree with that. It's because I feel like actually I, in Chicago, we have a really good model where our public health director, Allison Arwadi, Dr. Allison Arwadi, does a live stream every once a week that answers questions for the public. And I feel like that's a great model for our city of Chicago, and people can ask her anything. And she'll even address conspiracy theories if people have those. She doesn't, she doesn't care what people need to know. She'll answer it with science. And that's kind of what my mission is, and I kind of feel like every health department needs a person like me to answer the public's questions because it's important. People need to understand, and, and there's a lot of things we take for granted as scientists, as professors, that... People don't know. One of the things that really surprised me at the beginning of the pandemic was just the level of science literacy in in the lay public is not what we think it is. And as a scientist, like I'm used to speaking to graduate students, and so my first videos are embarrassing. They're like me teaching class, you know, to my master's students, and that's not what the public needs. We need like if there's a, a study out saying, you know. There's increased risk of something, you know, with this variable. Like, you have to say it like, getting COVID over and over is bad, and you should avoid it. Like, you need to say it mm -hmm. in a way that's resonating. And I think it, it, isn't a, it isn't something that all scientists have naturally, I guess. 
but we, we really need to kind of cultivate the science communication piece of this because the science literacy is not there. And also risk perception, people really have a, humans are really bad at assessing risk. So we like to believe that anything natural is good and anything man-made is inherently bad. So that coupled with the lack of science literacy leads people to think like the vaccine is dangerous because it's made by people, but the COVID is not a big deal because it's a natural mm. disease. And if you get immunity through COVID, it's better somehow. And it's just this lack of awareness of, <laughs> and it's really hard to break through some of these things. When did you, when did, when did you come to that realization? And I asked that because, mm. you know, in the previous session, Dr. Collins, they were talking about science and, and information. And if that is kind of when you're communicating to the public, are facts and figures and, and the hard data, is that enough to kind of change hearts and minds, so to speak? So that's a really great question. And it's something I grapple with all the time because I am a data person. Like my, I'm an epidemiologist, so my, my business is data, right? That's what I do. So I think what what works for me on my channel, and I know it's not, you know, it's just one channel out of many, is I do stay with the data, but I try and tend to try to show graphs and explain to not a bunch of numbers and explain to people what this means for you and what you can do about it. Every I don't want to ever be presenting information with no, like, this is what you can do. You know, I, I want to try to make actionable actionable suggestions at the end of every video to say, okay, yeah, this is what's going on and it is potentially bad, but if you, you know, get your booster, if you, you know, I want to try to put things, give people a sense of control because a lot of times when people are believing these misinformation conspiracies, it's because people are scared and there's a sense of control there. Like, oh, well, it's all made up. It's all just a conspiracy that kind of gives them this control back. But I feel like if you give them the real information, but then also give them a sense of control, it helps, I think. It helps calm people. And I think data is soothing. If you know what's going on and you actually understand it, if you're a layperson, I think that helps. And in the media, you'll see like, oh, this is going on, there's a big increase in COVID, and people just glaze over because they're like, oh, I'm gonna have to be back in a lockdown, you know? And there's not enough time on a news broadcast to get into the nuance and the real, like, what this means for you and what you can do about it, you know? How have you seen your audience change over the past two and a half years? Um, well, it's gotten bigger. Um, Other than And that. because <laughs> of that, I think, no, but because of that, I think I get a lot more, um, there's a lot of like fake accounts and there's a lot of, um, you know, people that follow you for different reasons. Um, and as your accounts grow bigger, the, the troll comments and the like hatefulness grows also. Um, but I do think I have a lot more scientists that follow me now and particularly young women scientists that will write me messages a lot and say like, oh, you've really inspired me to study public health. And I'm not bringing that up to be like, oh, I'm so great, but it's actually been sort of like the honor of my life to hear these comments because it's just amazing to have that kind of impact on a, on a young person, you know? So, and, and 
as we're talking about algorithms and audience, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of changes have our foot at one social media yes. uh, platform in particular. I mean, are you seeing are, are you seeing um, a difference? Do you see any kind of long term risks? You know, with Twitter saying they're no longer going to censor medical misinformation as it regards to COVID. I mean, yeah, I was part of the. Um, First, it was 270 physicians that were um, wrote an open letter to Spotify about misinformation on their platform because they weren't moderating, and now Twitter is not going to be moderating anymore. And it's a problem because when you have large social media accounts sharing conspiracy misinformation that has absolutely no data to back it up, it's it's not really a free speech issue. So this this the Elon Musk like free speech absolutist, it, it's really like yelling fire in a movie theater when you have a public health issue. And to both sides that is, is really not accurate. It, it provides a sense of false balance to like there's two sides to the data when there's really data and there's evidence-based medicine and then there's conspiracy theories and things that don't have data to support them. And so it really isn't the same. And so getting rid of the guardrails around that is really not a good thing. And you know, you mentioned science literacy, right? So if we're talking about getting rid of guardrails and, yes. and now we are realizing kind of, I think the, the pandemic has helped everybody realize the low rate of, of science literacy. Mm -hmm. How do you kind of push back against that misinformation in terms of communication styles? You know, you were saying COVID is bad, COVID is bad over and over again. Yeah. Like, do you, do you moderate what you say? Have you found that any kind of one particular style of saying something, method of saying something is most effective? It's interesting because across platforms, it's different okay. depending on what you're doing. So on Twitter, I tend to be a little more cerebral and scientific because a lot of the people that follow me on there are like other PhDs or you know people that are very interested in science and research um, whereas on TikTok I can be a little bit more flippant or respond to comments and just sort of be, but I wouldn't be that same I wouldn't take that same uh, approach on on Twitter so it's interesting it kind of depends on the platform mm. and the audience do you see um difference in the types of misinformation that you come up against depending on the platform as well? So the, the, it's interesting because the misinformation seems to have a life cycle and they come back, like the same ones kind of come back around, different themes, but they'll like keep coming back around. And I noticed that once something takes hold, it's across the board. So it'll be from all platforms. So if I start to see different themes in my comments, like um, last week, there was a anti-vax documentary that came out and I kept getting comments like over Thanksgiving weekend, like you need to watch this from from troll mm -hmm. accounts and people that just wanted to try to be like, gotcha, you know. And so I had the misfortune of watching it and um, <laughs> it, it, you know, it was just a bunch of nonsense. And so I did a lot of rebuttals to that. But my approach, again, was very different on Twitter. I would do point by point with evidence and data, whereas on TikTok, I would just kind of say the, you know, I wasn't really kind of backing it up with all those things. So yeah, it's, it's once I start to see comments over and over, I know that this is something that's taken hold. Um, 
you know, and it's like a cancer. It goes through, you know, once something takes hold, it just doesn't stop and it keeps rearing its ugly head over and over again. What are those themes? What are those big themes? Yeah, so some of it, like there's COVID denialism that's still taking place to this day, like that all the deaths in 2020 were miscounted and it was really something else and it wasn't COVID. The, excess mortality is due to the vaccine and it's not due to COVID. I mean, it's just the same, the fertility issues, the miscarriages, like every, all these things have been debunked so many times now. Um, but, it, and now it's like that myocarditis is, you know, that's what's causing all these people to like die suddenly. And it, it's just, it's exhausting and it doesn't, they, there's the problem with why we need to flood the inf information space with good information, like you were saying, Dr. Fauci was saying, is because there's only so many of us doing this and there is absolutely no end to the energy on the other side of this equation. They will throw so many resources at providing disinformation that it's a constant job to try to combat it all. And so, you know, we're, we're just about out of time, so I want to ask you one last question, and that has to, let, let's leave on a slightly hopeful note, that right? Let's, so fast. let's try to be hopeful, right? Because we're having a great conversation. This is what happens when we're having fun. Um, is it working? Do you feel like what you're doing makes a difference? I, I, I like to think so. I, I do think that people, like I said, if you plant a seed in people that you, that you can get through to, then those people can then go on and plant that same seed with other people. And I have had lots of messages from people saying like, my coworker got vaccinated because we talked about some of the things that you said on your channel, or I sent your videos to my dad and he ended up getting vaccinated. And I've, people send me pictures of like, this is the first time I've caught up my child on all their vaccinations because I was, I didn't, I was listening to the wrong sources before. And these things like mean so much to me when people share that with me, because I do know that it is doing something and there's probably more that just aren't reaching out. And, you know, and I think what you do, good information that you put out there, it proliferates and it goes, there's ripple effects to that. Well, good. Dr. Kat, thank you so much for being here today. We appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. <laughs> thank you. And everybody else, stay with us. We'll be back in a few minutes. The following segment was produced and paid for by a Washington Post Live event sponsor. The Washington Post newsroom was not involved in the production of this content. Hello, I'm Elise Labatt, and today we're talking about the importance of research partnerships, collaborations to develop and to translate scientific innovation are essential for overcoming the most pressing challenges of our time. But often, partnerships involving private sector funding are regarded with skepticism on top of the already skeptical nature um, that we're talking about today, about some of these scientific innovations. To talk about how companies can strengthen public trust in industry-funded research through more transparency, I'm joined by Matthias Beringer, the Senior Vice President for Public Affairs and Sustainability at Bayer, and Carrie Funk, the Director of Science and Society Research at Pew Research Center. Thanks so much for joining us today. Good morning. 
Thanks for having us. Matthias, let's start with you. You know, obviously we're here today to talk about trust in science. And, you know, it, we've seen, especially during, especially during the pandemic, there's not an insignificant amount of skepticism, even before we talk about funding and for scientific research and where it comes from. Well, I think um, uh, one of the challenges we have seen uh, during the pandemic uh, have been discussed earlier this morning um, there are no shortcuts in science. And that alone, I think, is a source of uh, a lot of debate. Uh, and people sometimes want quick answers. And uh, also they want to have answers in a certain way. What impressed me most was when um, we got the results back of our tests of like one of those mRNA vaccines. And, and they weren't pretty. And our chief medical officer, Mike DeVoy, uh, kind of basically said, well, that's actually great news because we have a really strong result. We have a great methodology and that is science. And he was celebrating that. Um, but of course, in the public debate, that's often difficult. People want quick answers and obviously in times of crisis, they want a yes and not a we don't know yet. Yeah, that's true, Carrie. And, you know, often when we're talking about um, researching these products, which are so critical and highly important for society, um, there's this skepticism about who's funding the research and, and specifically about what the results might be. Um, talk a little bit about that skepticism and what is driving it. Sure. You know, one thing I would just keep in mind is that people's judgments around science are complicated. They're nuanced, right? So what we've often seen in our past research is that you know a majority of Americans can see medical researchers as competent to do their job, but at the same time, they bring a caution or a skepticism to that. Two things people are often particularly skeptical about. One has to do with whether or not researchers will be open and honest about potential conflicts of interest from industry-sponsored research. Um, and the other is kind of more general around issues of research integrity, whether people will admit the mistakes that they might make and then take responsibility for them. So those are kind of the sources of skepticism. You know, one thing the public is often looking for is the potential motives that might be behind research findings that might be other than public interest, what else might be going on. So that's what the public is looking for. It's part of a healthy skepticism around research. Yeah, and you really don't find that often. People, as you said, they're not kind of being transparent with their motives or often with the results. Like you always kind of, you don't see the scientific research and, and until you see the positive benefits. So, you know, that kind of debate that Matthias was talking about, you often don't see. Um, Matthias, let's talk about the benefits of funding and research. I mean. Look, the trend lines in government funding are not great. I mean, would some of these biggest inventions even be possible without corporate funding? I, I don't think so. I mean, uh, we spend uh, every year roughly five, five and a half uh, billion uh, dollars in R&D. A lot of that is going in-house. We have 20,000 scientists uh, working at Bayer, but a lot is invested in partnerships. Um, some other companies, the largest investors in the field, uh, easily spend three times the amount of money that, that we spend. Um, the challenge is, is the public doesn't really know where that money goes. So transparency around what is the nature of the partnerships, who partners with Bayer in this case, what is the research topic about, uh, could be a way to provide more uh, clarity on what's going on and ultimately increase the acceptance in what's needed. And that is a huge 
private push in order to uh, uh, drive scientific progress. Um, and often it's about collaboration. We wouldn't have gotten the vaccines in record time, as we heard earlier this morning, um, without um, this partnership between the public and a private space. Yeah, let's dive into that a little bit more because Kerry was talking about that uh, sometimes the public doesn't think that you're going to be, you know, honest about your results, but you're not going to develop a product until you think that, you know, it's going to work. So, so discuss a little bit about, you know, this, that skepticism about whether you're upfront about the research itself in a, when you're having a, you know, a private partnership with a company like Bayer. Well, we, we had a big debate about, um, for example, the studies that you need to submit to approve um, uh, certain products, be it in the pharmaceutical space, uh, be it in the crop protection space. And, and the debate was, um, can we actually be fully transparent with all the study results? Not only those that deliver um, the outcome we believe is the right outcome, uh, that contribute to what is often called a sufficient scientific consensus, but also the outliers. Um, so we have put that into practice uh, in the European Union, which is uh, a quite a difficult place for, for getting approval for chemicals. And, and the outcome was overwhelmingly positive. Uh, both uh, the broad public as well as the regulators appreciated that they could see the full suite of studies. And I think it's really important to do that. Um, and, and one of the challenges with science business needs to also get their arms around is, this is not a democratic process. Just because you have 15 studies that say something is great doesn't mean it's great. It only takes one study that changes the complete concept behind what the science You're is. You're just one study away from proving that the last yeah, study always, always one study away from uh, uh, changing our beliefs, but um, uh, not every study is doing that. And that is the, the critical point. That's why this concept of a sufficient scientific consensus is so important. But we shouldn't shy away from also talking about the outliers and um, uh, have a dialogue with those research teams that come to different conclusions. Why do you think companies are so reluctant to be transparent about some of these research collaborations? Well, I mean, the thing about industry-funded research and development is that it is mostly not visible to the public eye, right? It's behind closed doors. It's proprietary. So there's most of it we don't know about. We know it's part of the research ecosystem, but we don't get to see a lot of it. So what's important, I think, about initiatives like this is it allows us to have an eye into what's going on in terms of industry-funded research and development. And then, of course, it's addressing you know, one of these more core questions that the public has in terms of whether or not there is, um, whether there might be other, other factors. And so this is giving people an a way to answer those questions. Do you think that's changing with the pandemic? I mean, we saw these public-private partnerships in terms of vaccine development, and I think companies are being a little bit more public-facing now about these partnerships, don't you think? I mean, you know, look, trust is always relational. We talk about earning trust, right? And so there's a matter of um, trust is usually rooted in past experiences, so mm -hmm. you need to kind of build it and maintain it over time. These initiatives for more openness, transparency is just kind of a core element of showing that you're trustworthy. So this is a big day for Bear. Um, when we're talking about the role of transparency in corporate funded science to regain that public trust, um, you've already had an initiative to, you know, have you have a database 
in some of your foreign um, collaborations, but you just announced the Bayer Science Collaboration Explorer database where you're disclosing information on your research partners here in the US. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, the idea behind it is that um, whenever we sign a contract with an individual scientist or with a science institution, that we are fully transparent around, about this and that um, the scientists that actually choose to partner with us are also comfortable being fully transparent around that. Um, uh, we believe that uh, this is a, a contribution business can make before being forced to do that. Uh, we've seen in other areas, lobbying for example, also conflict of interest disclosures, that um, it always takes scandals or it always takes huge demonization to the detriment of trust in science before these kind of transparency measures um, uh, take root. And we believe that um, uh, by doing that and demonstrating that's possible, we, we set an example for institutions as well as business, as well as individual researchers to kind of err on the side of transparency. That's only one component of trust, but I believe it's a very important one. Um, and for Bayer, I'm quite glad that we can be sure about any partnership that uh, our business here is contracting on uh, will be covered um, under those transparency rules. So you already had that in some of your foreign collaborations. What's different here now? Well, we, we, we started in Germany where we have the most contracts. Um, uh, uh, most of our uh, R&D activities somehow originates in Germany. That didn't mean that we wouldn't include, for example, German-born partnerships with US researchers. Um, but one of the positive experience was that the fear that people would then rather say thank you for no thank you and not partner with us did not materialize. I think it's good for everybody involved to provide full transparency here. Yeah, and uh, Matthias talks about transparency being one element of trust. But, you know, it, that, that's not alone enough. So talk about some of the other ways we can, you know, dialogue and engagement can play in, in creating more trust about these you know, public-private partnerships, which I think both government and, and corporations recognize are, are critical to, these, to getting these innovations into the market. Sure, I mean, I think one thing to keep in mind is that trust tends to be dynamic, so we should expect there to be ups and downs in levels of public trust. We certainly have seen with the pandemic how important public trust is in what officials say and what research says in, in general. But the thing I want to bring up from our earlier conversation today is that one of the key challenges for science communication is actually communicating around uncertainty. Science is very familiar with uncertainty, right? It's, it's part and parcel of all scientific research. But that's the really tough challenge, right, is to explain why you know, how you know it, and what you don't know um, about the findings. And I think that's also part of the principles of building trust, which is to kind of be forthright and open about the degree to which there's uncertainty and to listen with empathy to other people's questions and help address those. How do you, you provide the database and people can go and look. How do you at Bear anticipate, or how are you, or how do you anticipate now with this new American-based initiative, um, dealing with those questions that come from the transparency? Well, I think we need to engage in conversations about them. Um, uh, it's not the only way um, a company like, like Bayer is scrutinized and most company, companies experience that, but we have to lean in. Uh, earlier this morning, 
there was a question about what are the big breakthroughs that are coming. And uh, what we believe is um, a territory where we will have fundamental breakthroughs is where biology, chemistry, and artificial intelligence intersect. mRNA vaccines is one of the many uh, examples for that. Um, this requires um, a public conversation, um, even at times when we are not in the midst of a crisis. And, and for us to lean in and also to be um, in, a, in a very different mindset of dialogue is, is crucial. Um, often I'm asked why did Europe, for example, reject GMOs as opposed to, let's say, the United States. And one of the big challenges was that industry wasn't willing to be um, supportive of labeling. Again, a transparency example of uh, why something uh, didn't work out. And, 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 and that's, that's really crucial in order to seize the opportunities at this intersection of biology, chemistry, and artificial intelligence well beyond um, a vaccine that in my book got very high rates of acceptance. Let's not forget that yeah. the majority of people was very supportive. Carrie, we just have um, about a minute left. When you bring, forget about the skepticism about science, then when you bring some of these issues Matthias is talking about, like artificial intelligence, that's going to create a whole new level of skepticism and the need for this kind of trust and dialogue. Well, really important, and I think it's, it's why we're having this session today. It's why at the Pew Research Center we study science, right? Because science is bringing these kind of broader questions to us. That It's raising social and ethical questions. And so that's, it's great to be part of that conversation, and that's why we're here, to be thinking about how these new developments are potentially changing society. Well, and hopefully these measures to strengthen transparency in science and that dialogue and keep kind of dealing with the uncertainty and talking about it will build trust not just in the partnerships but in the science and innovations themselves. Matthias Berninger, Senior Vice President for Public Affairs and Sustainability at Bayer, and Carrie Funk, Director of Science and Society Research at Pew Research Center. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Elise. Thank you. Thank you all. And now, back to Washington Post Live. Good morning. For those of you just joining us, I'm Paige Winfield Cunningham, Deputy Newsletter Editor here at The Post. And joining me for a discussion about the view from the front lines is Dr. Kurt Newman, President and CEO of Children's National Hospital here in DC. Dr. Newman, welcome back to Washington Post Live. Well, thank you, Paige. It's great to be here. I'd like to start by asking about what you're currently seeing in the emergency department at your hospital. I know we're all seeing headlines constantly about RSV, flu, and of course COVID, but what are you seeing at your hospital? Well, the headlines are true, and we're seeing an unprecedented convergence of these viruses, whether it's uh, the, uh, the COVID or whether it's uh, uh, general cold viruses but also flu and RSV, and they're all hitting all at the same time. That's the, not the usual cycle. We've kind of gotten used to a cycle, uh, the uh, uh, COVID-19 uh, independent of that, but the cycle of when RSV hits, when flu hits, and the hospitals are all used to that. What we're not used to is everything hit, happening all at once, and that's really putting a, a big burden on the emergency departments, the ICUs, uh, the pediatricians' offices uh, everywhere. And then you uh, put on top of that uh, the mental health crisis we're fi facing in children and ad adolescents. 
So I know it's an overused terminology, but it's this perfect storm, and the, the hospitals are right at the, the center of that. So as a parent of young children, what I, the first thing I want to know is how to evaluate the risk for my kids. So when we're talking about these three illnesses, are there some ways that parents should be thinking about this? I mean, it sounds like RSV is especially hitting kids. Uh, what about the flu? And then, of course, we know COVID has been disproportionately toward older folks. But can you put all of that kind of in perspective for us? Well, first of all, uh, it's a great question. And, and preparation is probably one of the best things uh, uh, that, that you could do, uh, which is to read a lot, understand uh, what these uh, different uh, diseases are, but also have conversations in advance with your pediatrician uh, and other trusted sources so that you can evaluate if, if a child, and depending on the age too, that's important, uh, if they're a newborn versus a, a two or three year old, uh, versus school age. And there's different uh, presentations uh, there so that you can get somewhat uh, comfortable and know what to look for. Mm -hmm. uh, and when, when you're talking to pediatricians, what are they most concerned about in this moment? Uh, I think they're most concerned about missing something because of all of the uh, uh, children and, and families that are coming into their offices and they're overwhelmed. Uh, they want to be able to sort out uh, who the, the really sick child is that needs to go to the emergency department versus someone who uh, just has a, a cold or, 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 the, or something that can be managed at home. So I think that's what they are uh, trying to manage, trying to triage uh, how, to, how to evaluate uh, those things. And then, of course, there's uh, people that don't have a, a pediatrician that they have used, and so they're uh, again, there's areas in our, our society where there are just not enough doctors, and those kids are even more at risk. What's your practical advice for people at this moment? Because it, it seems like you know, we've gone through a couple of years where we were all masking, we were doing more isolating. We feel like we've sort of emerged from that in this moment, and yet now we're facing these new threats. What, is the practical, what are the practical steps that you think parents should be taking? Well, one of the... Uh, unintended consequences of all of the uh, prevention measures, uh, measures that we took uh, around uh, during the, the height of the pandemic, uh, the, the masking, the social distancing, uh, kids maybe weren't in, in school, uh, they weren't in childcare, all of that really knocked down the number of, of uh, the RSV situation, the flu uh, uh, incidents. Uh, so that we uh, didn't really see much of that respiratory uh, illness uh, during, the, during that time. We did see COVID, and COVID happens in, in children, but we uh, did not see uh, uh, those viruses. And now they've come back with a vengeance, and a lot of people believe that th the immune system of those uh, younger children was just not challenged by the usual viruses. So again, they're, they're now that kids are back uh, in school or they're back in childcare or their parents are, uh, and, and not that many people are masking anymore, we're seeing uh, all of that transmission of the virus. And that feels like also because the kids haven't been challenged before, it's worse. So that the impact of having the flu or having RSV is worse. And uh, it just, 
you know, it's very, very uh, scary to see a, a child, uh, let's say a two-year-old that's gasping for breath, can't get uh, their breath uh, because these viruses are attacking uh, their lungs. So that's uh, uh, why uh, th particularly uh, children that have underlying conditions, whether it's heart disease or cancer, or maybe it uncovers uh, disease, uh, other diseases are especially at risk. Uh, so, uh, and it's all coming into the emergency department. So that's what, uh, when you hear about the long lines uh, or the inability to get a bed uh, in the hospital. And uh, paradoxically, uh, there's hospitals across the country that have closed their pediatric beds. They didn't see uh, the need for them or whatever the rationale was. So that's made it even more concentrated on the hospitals that, that have, have, have those facilities. And I want to return to provider shortages because that's a really important uh, topic. But just so we're clear, it, it, you guys aren't returning to a recommendation to wear masks, right? I mean, it sounds like the focus at this point is to get kids vaccinated against these things, and that's sort of our frontline defense here. Well, certainly uh, where there are vaccines, uh, like for flu, uh, we're pushing that hard. Uh, unfortunately, there's not yet a vaccine for, for RSV, so uh, that's a, uh, uh, a issue. Hopefully, there's one coming along uh, in the next year or two. Uh, certainly, we, want, uh, we encourage vaccination of the, the children uh, so that we could take, generally take uh, the uh, COVID virus off the table. Uh, so, that, uh, so that's the, the strategy. I, you know, I feel if I had a child uh, that was at risk, particularly at risk with an underlying disease, I would certainly stick to the masking and, and prevention, uh, uh, prevention uh, approaches. Okay. Uh, I know you'd mentioned that you have a grant or your hospital has a grant, I believe, from NIH to study children who have had COVID and watch them see what symptoms develop or what the effects are. Can you tell me a little bit more about that and what your takeaways are so far? Sure. Uh, you know, one of the uh, big uncertainties, uh, because we'd never faced a pandemic uh, that was uh, based on the coronavirus, uh, and there was so much unknown about its impact on children. I mean, I remember back when it first was, was coming uh, along, people were saying, well, uh, children are not affected. Well, we've learned uh, the hard way that that's not true. Uh, so what we wanted to do, because we, we at Children's National and other uh, pediatric hospitals uh, were seeing uh, the impact on children, we wanted to follow the natural history. So that meant uh, taking several thousand children that had, were positive uh, uh, for, for the virus uh, and following them along and looking at did other diseases develop, um, uh, mental health issues, how, what the natural history of this uh, uh, was long. And so we're doing that in conjunction with the, the NIH. We have a multidisciplinary clinic where we look at all the different uh, organ systems that are affected, whether it's the heart, the brain. It's a comprehensive uh, look at things. And then we'll follow that along for three or four years to see are, what are we seeing? Are, are we seeing uh, things new? There's long COVID that a, long, a lot of people are, are worried about. Uh, what does that mean? How does it show up? 
And uh, there's some other things that uh, we're seeing. The incidence of diabetes, I know we were talking before, uh, has risen. Nobody expected that. So we're seeing uh, uh, not only more cases of diabetes, uh, we believe that the virus is attacking the islet cells of the pancreas that's causing that through an immune thing. But we've also seen a, a really a tremendous rise in the number of type 2 diabetes. And we're thinking that that relates to children not getting as much exercise, maybe gaining weight. Uh, and we're seeing that earlier and much more severe. Yeah, that's remarkable. I know that we've seen quite a rise in type 1 diabetes among adults. So remarkable to hear we're seeing that among children as well. Um, uh, I know that you host an event last spring with Vice President Harris and Surgeon General Morthy about the negative impact of the pandemic on healthcare workers, which you already alluded to. Can you talk to us uh, more about what those effects are and how it's creating challenges for your own hospital? Sure. Well, it's something we're paying very close attention to, and I, I have a particular uh, uh, sensitivity to it, uh, having been a surgeon uh, myself for most of my career. My wife's a nurse. Uh, and you know, in the early stages of the pandemic, uh, there was a sense in our country and the support of the community that uh, healthcare workers were heroes and were doing all the right things. And, and uh, you know, there was a real sense of we are really fighting the good fight here and we are going to uh, win this war. Uh, one of the things that's happened is that it's not an easy war to win and things are going on much longer. There's still uncertainty. We're talking about long COVID, mental health issues. Uh, these impacts are, are going on and on. Yet the healthcare workers, and there's fewer and fewer because many have left the workforce, are really getting tired. And they're not feeling the same, that same level of, of support and enthusiasm from the community. And I just feel like there's this sense of uh, they, they feel like they've given it their all and there's fatigue and when is it going to end? The uh, unintended consequence of that is that there's, because there's fewer and now we have this rapid uh, increase in this unprecedented uh, uh, numbers of, of cases and the emergency departments are full and the, the uh, ICUs are full. Uh, people are just are just tired and they've got their own fam families to worry about. I think we'll come out of it and I've never seen more courage uh, on, uh, by our, not only our doctors and nurses and pharmacists and respiratory therapists, but the people that keep the hospitals clean, the uh, food service workers. I mean, they're as front line as anybody. So it's something we really need to pay attention to, but we've seen a lot of mental health issues in our, our uh, uh, workforce, uh, people that are just, uh, tired and burned out. But I am confident that uh, this will turn around. It's a, it's a phase and we'll get back to a more stable situation. But it, the, one of the issues is I can't tell people how long that'll be when they ask me, well, how long are we going to be working under these kinds of conditions? I don't have a solid answer. I want to be straight with them. But most of us went into medicine with the idea that we were going to help people, and, and that hasn't changed. What departments or specialties uh, is burnout the worst? Do you have a sense of that? Well, I think in, uh, uh, particularly in, in mental health uh, professionals, uh, they uh, have long uh, wait times to get in, uh, and the, the issues and the crises that they're dealing with, 
and you just don't hear enough about it. Uh, we're not training enough people. We don't uh, reimburse it the right way. We're not doing enough research. Uh, so that's an area I think our, uh, we all need to make a major investment in. But it's also the people uh, in the critical care areas, the emergency department, the ICUs, because it's, uh, you know, these, these are uh, 24, 7, 365 things. You can't, take a, you can't take time off. And if there's fewer of you, you're just stretched even further. And these people are so committed. They don't want to say, hey, I need more uh, time, uh, time, or I need a break here. And there may not be somebody to provide that break. So uh, again, it's, it, it's a point in time. Uh, and I'm confident that we'll turn it around. And you know, I'm so proud of our teams uh, because uh, where would kids and families go if, if, they weren't, if we weren't there for them? So that, I think, does uh, lift us up. But you just can't count on that forever. I want to ask you about another issue, which I know I've done some a lot of writing and thinking about, and it's this erosion of trust in scientists and medical experts. And you look back over the last couple of years, and uh, there's been this rise of misinformation. And then also this just real frustration that members of the public felt like they were misled. And some of that criticism is probably legitimate, and some of it probably isn't. But how do we get at this problem. Um, are you seeing this problem in your own hospital with people not taking the advice of medical professionals? And then how do we counter that? Well, that's a big uh, question and a big, uh, big concern. Uh, I think part of it uh, uh, started as a sense of complacency, if you will. Uh, we got so used to uh, having uh, the science and the vaccines and we didn't see a lot of the diseases in children that we used to, that you know, probably before my generation uh, would see measles, mumps, uh, polio, where the vaccination and science really eradicated uh, uh, those issues for the most part. So maybe uh, the doctors and scientists, we all got complacent and we just thought, well, of course, everybody knows that this is good for you and it's gonna prevent all of this stuff. And we'd never seen a pandemic on the scale that uh, we had. We weren't ready for it. And so I think that uh, because uh, this, the sense, I think there was an erosion of trust uh, because I don't think we were straight and direct uh, about what we did know and what we didn't know. And then from time to time, things that people thought were gospel turned out not to be true. So I think we need to get back to uh, being more humble and uh, with a sense of humility as a doctor or a scientist or a nurse and be straight with people about what we do know and what we don't know and what we're uncertain about uh, and connect to the communities and, and go where they are and not necessarily sit back in hospitals or clinics but be out there in the schools and in the community and re-engage at, uh, at a level uh, around uh, the community. We've got to rebuild that sense of trust. And I think uh, that's at the heart of it. What I hear is that most people uh, trust their own doctor, uh, so, but they don't necessarily trust the medical profession. So it's, you know, there's a... Uh, uh, kind of a paradox there, uh, but 
I think we as individual doctors and nurses, we need to rebuild, rebuild that trust. One of the things we're doing as well, we got a, a big grant uh, from, the, from the federal government is to work with other children's hospitals. There's five children's hospitals across the country creating a pediatric pandemic coordinating center. And the idea is that we'll have the best evidence, the best science, and uh, to your point, the communication strategies prepared in advance. I think we were caught uh, short uh, on this one. We want to be prepared in advance so we can spread uh, uh, the knowledge that we have, but also be mindful of there's so much distrust and there's so many alternative places that people get information. Really think about how we uh, uh, provide that in information in a way that people can evaluate it and trust. Where we're seeing the, uh, uh, you know, on the front line, some of the, my worry is that distrust comes into the hospital. And so along with the discussion we were having about the shortage, now healthcare workers are very worried about the violence uh, that's, that's happening or the, uh, the, the issues that happen in the hospital where uh, people don't want to wear a mask, even though you know, it's 100% masking in a hospital, or don't want to uh, comply with the various uh, regulations and take it out on that nurse or that doctor. And that creates this environment uh, that I've never seen before. Well, I know you recently announced your retirement, um, and we're running short on time here, but as a last question, I did want to ask you, as you think about stepping down, what do you hope to do with the lessons that you've taken away from the pandemic to perhaps help leaders of hospitals around the country? Yeah. Well, uh, you're right to say I've announced my intention to uh, retire. It has nothing to do with, uh, I want to make sure, with burnout or anything like that. But I'm as fired up about what I'm doing right now, and it was just a great time uh, to uh, uh, help the hospital make a change uh, in leadership. Uh, but I feel, uh, I think my biggest contribution might be uh, a sense of optimism. Uh, I've been so inspired over the years uh, taking care of children and families and had children's for th 38 years. Uh, and I've seen the passion of, of doctors and nurses and the impact we can have in our community. So I'm going to uh, stay engaged and involved with that uh, because, you know, we've just got such great science and medicine. And it's, uh, it's just been an honor to be CEO of Children's National. And I want to continue to uh, help Children's National in Washington, DC, uh, provide uh, the best uh, outcomes and the best futures for our children. So thank Well, you. we're out of time, so we'll have to leave that uh, there. But thank you so much for joining us, Dr. Newman. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for listening. For more information on our upcoming programs, go to WashingtonPostLive.com.